0: Good morning, church. My name is Joel Dunn, and it is my privilege to read for you Joshua 9, verses 1 through 6, as well as 14 and 15. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all around the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezerites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Here's 14 and 15. So the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank Thank you, God.
1: You may be seated I think um, that passage struck me in a different way hearing Joel read it and me getting to just sit and listen. It struck me in a different way than how I've been reading it and studying it. Um, Maybe not in a different way, but in a deeper way. That here Joshua is being deceived and then we see in verse 14 and they bought it because they didn't seek the counsel of the Lord. Um, before I get into that, I want to let y'all know, um, first of all, my name is Ryan. I, I see many faces I haven't got to meet yet. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, my wife, Kendall, and I and our, our kids, we're going to be on a three-week sabbatical. So starting tomorrow through the month of July, we're going to unplug from the world. We're going to turn our phones off, leave our computers closed, um, and just rest. Rest is a priority for us, uh, the leadership here at Redeemer. And so um, we're going to take that opportunity to do that uh, through the month of July. And so would you please pray for us? Um, I, I heard rest defined a few weeks ago as it's a rest is a confession that goodness still happens even when I'm not working. And so we're able to back away and hand things to Brian and Kirstie hand things to Kelsey and, and all of our volunteers and say, I don't need to be here because the Holy Spirit is still in charge. And so we're, we're taking a few weeks. Um, Jesus led us in particular to seek him uh, through rest to, t- for two things, presence and healing. And so he, he's led us to uh, seek his presence and the presence of one another to be just together as a family, and also to find healing and just rest for our souls and restoration for our souls. Uh, And so would you pray that Kendall and I and Simon and Willa and Adler and Micah, would you pray that we all find rest and healing in the presence of Jesus? Um, We'll be back on August 1st, uh, but we will miss you guys dearly. We love you, and uh, it's going to be uh, at the same time, a short and long three weeks. We'll miss being here. I'll miss preaching, but we're going to enjoy our time away. So, um, okay, Joshua nine. Joshua nine. I, I just pointed out that here we are in this reality that Joshua kind of allows Israel to be deceived. It's almost like he just passively. He's not even present in the the introduction of this chapter. He's kind of an absent leader. And then eventually he comes in and he says, okay, Gibeonites, who are you really? They're suspicious. Who are you really? Where did you really come from? And it's almost comical the way that they respond, right? It's almost like one of those Nickelodeon kids shows where these, you know, they're in disguise, this weird get up. And they're like, I promise I am who I say I am. And Joshua's like, okay, you promise. So I'm gonna believe you. But we get verse 14, but they did not seek counsel from the Lord. And so, in light of that, I want to ask you a couple questions before we really dig into Joshua 9. Have you ever made a mistake you can't undo? Have you ever made a commitment you can't unmake? Have you ever hurt someone that you can't heal? Have you said something you can't unsay? Thrown punches, literally or metaphorically, that you can't unthrow? Break something you can't fix? Have you ever done that? Have you ever done something you regret? Whether instantly or maybe it took some time for you to feel that regret. And sitting with those answers, how does that make you feel? That sometimes maybe it makes you feel like um, God is far off. He's kind of passively watching and just kind of letting you uh, sit with your wallow and squirm in your own decision making. He's kind of finding enjoyment just watching you suffer. Does it feel that way? Just me? Joshua 9 is a reminder. Remember, the book of Joshua is designed to remind Israel and to remind us as followers of Jesus that God will not let us go. That we can make bad choices. We can have incorrect thinking even so much as our theology can just be not exactly where it needs to be. We have the freedom to be wrong. We have the freedom to make mistakes because God will not let us go. Um, Gibeon intentionally deceives uh, Joshua. They deceive Israel They know that God has promised um, Israel to come into this land and conquer all the people in this land. And we saw in verses one and two that the rest of the kings, once they heard what Israel had done to Jericho and Ai, they were like, okay, well, we're not gonna let this happen to us. We're gonna self-preserve and self-defend. And it says in verse two that they bound together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. People are still bounding together, binding together, whatever the word is, people are still binding together as one to fight against God, right? That's still true of the nations. But Gibeon, Gibeon chose a different tack. Now, we noticed in the first six verses, the way that Gibeon deceived Joshua and Israel was they made themselves lowly. They humbled themselves, Very strange juxtaposition, if you know anything about the Gospels and what Jesus says is a true believer and follower of Jesus, someone who trusts him is someone who makes themselves lowly and doesn't follow their way, but trusts in the way of Jesus. Gibeon sort of does that, but on the surface. Now, Gibeon did not need to submit and wave the white flag of surrender. They were the mightiest of the kings in the nations that rose up against God. They were the ones that started that coalition that was mentioned in verse 2. They're of the mightiest nations in all of Canaan, a strong, royal, powerful, wealthy nation. And they make themselves lowly and ask God for mercy. They do it maybe with the wrong intentions, but we also saw Rahab in chapter 2. She lied and deceived because she trusted that, that if she surrendered to God, he would show her mercy. And so maybe whatever their intentions were, this wealthy, powerful kingdom stands in contrast to the surrounding nations because of the fact that they come to God. God cares much less how you come to him. He cares much more that you come to him. So Gibeon intentionally lies They lie to preserve, they deceive. And then the structure of the deception and the structure of the leadership of Israel and the resolution and how we find out about all this, it actually mimics Genesis 3 in um, the fall when Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent. The structure of Genesis 3 is a similar structure to Joshua 9, and we see a similar structure uh, in other chapters of Joshua, or in, um, excuse me, in Genesis in other deceptive moments. But what's important, the primary key to that structure is that God is not considered. we mentioned a few weeks ago that um, most of the chapters in Joshua, at least this first half, start, the Lord said to Joshua. Within the first few verses, we see the Lord said to Joshua. This means Joshua was in prayer. God was speaking to him. Joshua um, leveraged his position with God as being chosen, the chosen leader built for relationship with God, he leverages that to lead the nation. God does not show up at all in chapter nine. There is no, the Lord said, there is no, and Joshua prayed. In Genesis three, Adam and Eve refused to seek the counsel of God in the deception of the serpent. They knew that it was God the Father, the creator God, who gave them the instruction to not eat of the tree, yet they did not consult him when they were deceived of whether or not God actually said, you can't eat the tree. And in the same way, um, Joshua did not, and Israel did not seek counsel from their heavenly father who created the Gibeonites, who promised, I'm gonna go before you and give these nations into your hand. God knew who the Gibeonites were. He knew that they were in the land. He knew that they were not nomads from a far off land. But we still have verse 14, and it's, it's in a, actually a pretty specific place. So we mentioned before that sometimes in Hebrew literature, Um, the structure of a passage will frame the very central. So the the ending, or the beginning and the ending, and then it kind of walks towards the middle. It'll frame out the meaning of the passage. Sometimes, it doesn't work every single time. But we see in Joshua 9, we got 27 verses. The very middle of that is verse 14. Verse 14, so the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. How we read Joshua 9 hinges on verse 14. This is a a different passage, one, because God doesn't show up, but also because uh, the Holy Spirit, through the writer of Joshua, narrates and comments. He breaks the story for a second and says, they didn't seek counsel from the Lord. It's a different voice than Joshua or Israel or the Gibeonites. And so it reads a little bit different. And when we read verse 14, that's supposed to influence the way that we see the whole chapter. Now there is a sermon in here that would say, don't be like Joshua. We hinge on verse 14. Okay, so I'm gonna give you three life hacks to seeking the counsel of the Lord. Or we're gonna have a sermon series on biblical decision-making. Those are good. That's a different sermon. Because as I was studying this, um, I started thinking about the practical things and while I was studying, I couldn't help but stay in the mindset of like, I feel like Joshua. We have to be careful when we put ourselves into scripture, right? We cannot do that right away. We first have to look at what is this saying to its audience? Who is Joshua written to? It's written to ancient Israel. It's written to contemporary Israel today. It's reminding us that we have uh, a necessity, Israel has a necessity to depend on the Lord and to seek his counsel because he has promised that he would lead them. And so we look at Joshua 9 through that lens. God has promised, Jesus has promised through the Holy Spirit that he would lead us. He tells us in, um, in John 13 through 17 in the Upper Room Discourse, I'm gonna give you the helper and he's gonna lead you and guide you and teach you all things. And so we look at this and we're like, yeah, I I feel like Joshua. I feel like sometimes I make really poor decisions without consulting the Lord, without asking for guidance. I feel that way. How many of us feel that way? We just talked about it at the very beginning. How many times do we make a decision or say something without praying, make a commitment, spend some money, get into a relationship, cross boundaries in a relationship? We go somewhere in our lives without consulting the Lord. It's not long after uh, Joshua makes this terrible mistake, they make this covenant with Gibeon, that they find out who they are. It says, and after three days pass, that's just like an ancient Hebrew way to say, and a few days later, a few days later they find out who they are. The word gets out. You cannot keep a lifetime secret like that, especially when you're like a wealthy uh, country under a disguise as nomads. You just can't keep that up. So they, I'm sure, anticipated that this would get out. Joshua made a covenant with a land they were meant to be conquering. And when they find out who the Gibeonites really were, they're struck immediately with guilt. And so the Gibeonites, in their deception, and in their lying, are made guilty, but they're not Israel. They're not the people of God. They're not under the law. As we kind of hold them over here for a second. And we look at Joshua and Israel because they deliberately disobeyed God, they're found guilty. Now, how did they deliberately disobey God? Well, in Deuteronomy, a number of times, the book of Deuteronomy that comes just before Joshua, this is the book that God says, follow my instructions. Deuteronomy is the book of the teaching. And so when when God says, follow my instructions, cling to them, do not swerve from them, he's primarily thinking of the whole Torah, especially Deuteronomy, where there's instructions about the conquest in Israel, in Canaan. And so Israel's disobeying deliberately because there's a command in Deuteronomy that says, go and on your way to Canaan, make peace with the nations around the border. You can make peace with them, offer them peace. If they reject you peace, then you conquer them. We don't get any report outside of one or two kingdoms that did that, that refused peace. But he said, do not make a covenant of peace with any nation within the land that I'm taking you. And he repeats that. When God repeats something, it's like when your teacher repeats something, when your parent repeats something, It matters. There's weight to it. It's not arbitrary. This is not a silly mistake. God makes that command, and he he actually qualifies and defines that. He says, don't make a covenant with them because I know you. I know your hearts. Once you give a little bit, you're going to give everything away. The first of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. And God knew that once one of the Canaanite kingdoms comes in, in peace with Israel into the land, eventually it would lead to idolatry. It would lead to the breaking of all of the 10 commandments. And if we look ahead in the Bible, it does. But Gibeon is not the only nation that they just kind of passively, okay, that's fine. We won't wipe you guys out. That's not the first time. And so even this first mistake, even that God shows it mercy, it opens up a pattern of failure and disobedience, which probably is something we can relate to as well. There's a reflection of what happens through the rest of Joshua 9 and what happens in Joshua 10. Brian's gonna preach that uh, next week, and so I'll let him go to chapter 10, but I've got one thing. Chapter 10 says something about chapter 9. Let's look at, at Joshua 1, 5. He says, just turn back a few pages. He says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. We don't have time to get into that. That is an incredible statement. Moses was literally in the presence of God and he almost died because of it. And God says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, this incredible promise of presence. And then he says, I will not leave you or forsake you. The literal Hebrew translation says, I will not let you go. There's no condition. There's no, if you obey purely, I will not let you go. There's none of that. It's a covenant, it's a promise. It's a one-way promise. It's not transactional. It's not give and take. God says, I'm gonna be with you and I will not let you go, period. So God promises Joshua, if you do follow me, if you don't swerve, you're gonna have success. You're gonna be prosperous. You're You're gonna take up all the promises that I have for you. But he, he promises without condition. That's the, the conditional thing, right? If you follow me, I know the best way. If you go the best way, it's not gonna hurt. But what he promises, knowing that Joshua will fail him, he knows he will disobey. He knows, God knows all things. He sees Joshua better than Joshua sees Joshua. He knows that he's gonna make a covenant with people he's not supposed to, but yet he still makes the promise of presence. He says, I will not let you go. Gibeon was caught red-handed, and in Gibeon's guilt, it's not Gideon. Gideon is in Judges, the next book. We're talking about Gibeon, a nation. In Gibeon's guilt, Israel is then found guilty. And so there's this obvious, um, like, elephant in the room that we know about that the author, the Holy Spirit, through, through the author of Joshua, calls out in verse 14, just because God does not speak in Joshua 9 doesn't mean God is absent. Um, That verse 14 means that they didn't consult him. They didn't give him a chance to speak. But many commentators throughout, while I was studying, said that the primary character, the main character of Joshua 9, even though he's not present, is the mercy of God because of what happens in chapter 10. Now, there's a battle um, this coalition that we see in verse, uh, Joshua 9, verse 2, rises up against Gibeon because they find out that they forsook the coalition. So in coming to God, Gibeon risked something. Risked, that's a hard word to say, especially with a microphone. Gibeon made a risk on giving up and forsaking their, their worldly promises and covenants and coalitions. And they came to God. And we'll find out in chapter 10 that the nations find out about that and attack Gibeon. Gibeon calls on Joshua. And God, in the first time between Joshua 9 and 10, we see the words, the Lord said. Joshua prays, God, I made this covenant with these people and now it's coming back to bite me and you promised that you'd be with me. I need you. And the Lord said, I will give them into your hand. God is not an absent presence in Joshua nine, but his mercy is the main character of Joshua nine. Joshua keeps his promise. And we see this trajectory of Joshua through uh, the book, that he's becoming more and more like his heavenly father. And one of the ways that he does that is through keeping his promises. And so Joshua remembers the echo from chapter one from the beginning of the conquest on the other side of the Jordan River outside of the promised land. He remembers God said, I'll be with you. I will not let you go. Now, uh, Professor Jerome Creech asks an important question. And we're going to ask this question to ourselves because we're sitting here thinking about these mistakes that we've made, right? We're thinking about, yeah, this, this commitment I made, this boundary I crossed, these words that I said, this pain that I caused. We can't undo it and we can't take it back. And maybe some of us, even if we could, we probably wouldn't in some ways. Yes, to whom is Joshua 9 good news? That's an important question that every sermon writer needs to ask. Every sermon should have the answer to that question in it. To whom is Joshua 9 good news? And so Professor Creech gives us three helpful answers. He says, all who believe they face destruction from Yahweh. Yahweh is God's proper name. All who believe they face destruction from Yahweh. And if you're not a Christian, Joshua 9 is good news to you. Because if you believe that you face destruction from God, Joshua 9 shows that God prefers to be merciful. Gibeon positions themselves in submission and their motivation is twisted but still they surrender. Oftentimes we come to God with twisted motivations. And what we deserve is destruction. We cannot truly understand the gospel if we don't first understand that at a base level, every human being except Jesus deserves destruction. And if you believe that you face destruction from Yahweh, Joshua 9 is good news to you because he's promised you his presence. He's promised that if you come to him, you look on his son, Jesus, he will not let you go. To whom is Joshua 9 good news? All who believe the Lord would rather kill than save. All who believe that the Lord would rather show wrath than show mercy. See, we oftentimes make God like us, and say, oh, well, I did something wrong. I broke a rule, so I expect God to pull away from me. I expect him to be angry with me because that's how we respond when people mess with our expectations. We'll either pull away or we'll strike back. We expect God to do the same thing. And so if we expect God to kill rather than save, to show wrath rather than show mercy, Joshua 9 is good news to us because he doesn't. He saves. He shows mercy. His character is that he wants to save. We see in the Old Testament in, in Ezekiel 18, but we also see very clearly in the New Testament, Second Peter 3.9, the apostle Peter, Jesus' right-hand man, his number two, He says in his second epistle, his second letter, he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. That in itself could be a whole sermon. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some would count slowness. That means everything happens in the Lord's time, which often is not a comforting thing, right? When something really terrible is happening or you're waiting for a long time for something, When somebody says, well, it's in the Lord's timing. Sometimes that just feels like a platitude and you're like, ugh, I don't want that. But Peter says it in such a pastoral voice. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise because it anchors on him fulfilling his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all would reach repentance. Repentance. So if you're finding yourself even today wrestling with one of those mistakes and you're like, man, is there forgiveness for me? I'm hanging on to this thing. It's causing bitterness in my heart. It's actually caused a lot of relational conflict or it's caused, uh, it's caused a, a snowball effect and I'm sitting in a lot of other ways now. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. You look to Jesus. He will show you mercy. He will save He prefers to save. He prefers to show mercy. Joshua 9 is good news to you. And the third one, to whom is Joshua 9 good news? All who have swerved in their reliance on God. Those of us who have disobeyed his commands, who have gone our own direction, but simply anyone who sinned. And I'm looking at a room full of people who fit that category. And there's one on stage. This is all of us. To all of us, Joshua 9 is good news because every one of us fits in this category. Every one of us has swerved. Also in Joshua 1, after God promises to be with him, he says, don't, don't turn from the le- to the left or to the right from my commands. That, the literal translation again is don't swerve. It's almost like an inadvertent or like I can't control what I'm doing. God knows we will swerve. God knows, knew Joshua would swerve. And although he did, although we do, and although we still have Joshua uh, 9.14 for our own lives, where we don't seek the counsel of the Lord, he will not let you go. Joshua 9 is good news. He will not let you go. The character of God to offer mercy over destruction, forgiveness over retribution is fulfilled in the person of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. God's desire to save rather than kill was put on his son. We see in particular Um, before his death, we see that Jesus lived in this kind of truth. John 4, um, we have this interaction with Jesus with a woman, a Samaritan woman who's not a Hebrew. uh, She's not a a full Jew. And so politically and culturally, Jesus is not supposed to be talking to her, much less sitting at a well, having a full-blown conversation She's in the middle of the day, which means she didn't wanna be around other people because she has a reputation. She's made some mistakes she can't unmake. She's crossed some boundaries she can't uncross. She's been hurt by people and hurt people that she can't heal. This woman is like us. And she meets Jesus And she carries this identity with her that the land that she's from carries. It's unholy, it's unrighteous, it's unacceptable, it's far from God. She carries this identity with her to the well and she meets the Messiah. She meets the man who wipes out that identity. And and how he responds to her is so gracious and patient. And he says, um, they're having this interaction at the well and uh, eventually he's like, yeah, um, why don't you go get your husband? I have something to tell you. And she says, I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. I know all about your story. I know that the man you were with before was not your husband. The man you were with before was not your husband. And he sees that decision-making problem. He sees that boundary crossing. Yet he still accepts her because they get into this conversation, this theology conversation about worship, and, and um, the, the woman finally says, yeah, I, I, I don't have it all figured out. I don't have it all right, but I know that one day the Messiah will come, and he'll make everything right. He'll make me right, he'll save me. I trust that, I, I, I don't have any other answers. And Jesus says, that's me. That person you're talking about, he's here. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't say, unclean, unclean, unholy, get away. He doesn't tell her to to be quiet and stop talking about the things of the the Hebrew people because she's not. He says, yeah, you're right. I'm here for you. And then John tells us in in, uh, chapter four, verse 39, what happened next. She runs back into town. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And what was her testimony? Like he hadn't been on the cross yet. He hadn't actually saved her yet. But he accepted her. He saw who she really was. He saw the mistakes she had made and he accepted her and he welcomed her. He said, you belong, you have a place with me. If you look to me, you trust me to be the Messiah, I will not let you go. This is the testimony that she carries into her neighborhood. The character of God to show mercy to his people that that we would never be let go is ultimately displayed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. On the cross, this blood that was spilled, because when a covenant is made, there's blood spilled. There's animal sacrifice. On the cross, there's a new covenant. The blood of Jesus was spilled. And it was a covenant that God was not deceived into making. It was a covenant that he went into willingly knowing who was on the other side. He was not fooled by our, our, our fake selves that we want to present to God, that we have it put together, or that we present to ourselves. Jesus was the sacrifice of the new covenant that was not made by mistake. God knows you. He knows every mistake you've made. And he says to you, I'll be with you. I will not let you go. You may have heard us talk, uh, use the word missional. We talk about going, one of our uh, three cultural pillars. We have pray, celebrate, go. Go is that missional component of uh, we go out like Jesus commanded us to in, in Matthew and um, in, in the other gospels. He says, go to all the nations and, and tell them the good news. Make disciples and baptize them. That's important to us. The word missional, you've probably heard us use before. We talk about living and preaching the gospel. You've probably heard us pray for revival in St. Angelo. We, we pray that the spirit of God would fall on his church and give more of his spirit to his people so that we would worship him in truth and that we would make disciples of our city. That's revival in San Angelo. We pray for that. We talk about loving our neighbors. We talk about bearing the fruit of discipleship. Walking in obedience to this command to go is important. And we see that it's not this like task list of of things to do. It's not just we trust Jesus. Okay, the next thing we do is we go. It's a natural response. Once you see Jesus as this person who promises to you, I've made the sacrifice. Your mistakes aren't held against you. You don't get what you deserve. I've taken what you deserve. Just look to me. I will not let you go. The natural response of our souls is to go. Look at how the woman at the well responded. Immediately she went and told all the people she knew, which was like at least six guys. We find out later that the whole city hears the gospel in a matter of days because of all the people this woman knew. I'm saying this because your testimony of God not letting you go is what carries you into a life being missional, a life of living and preaching the gospel. It's what God has done for you. It's the transformation he's grown you in that you're not who you used to be, that the mistakes you've made and continue to make aren't held against you, this testimony of transformation, that God knows you fully yet accepts you fully, that's the message of the good news that we take out into our city, that we take out into San Angelo. And we offer it to people, this could be you too. We make it complicated a lot of times. It's much more simple. And so we just, we just need to ponder a few questions. Um, in some ways, preaching the gospel and evangelizing is pretty nuanced and complex. In the, the day-to-day majority of time, it's pretty simple. And so let's think about these questions. How has God shown you his mercy? And if you're a Christian, and you answered that question I began the sermon with, have you made a mistake? You have a story of God showing you mercy because he doesn't hold that against you. How has God shown you his mercy? In what ways do you need God to show you his mercy? God's mercy leads us into prayer, leads us into talking with God and depending on him and trusting him to show us mercy in what ways do you need to see and believe? Now, if we feel ill-equipped to go into mission with this story, with this uh, story of our transformation, ask yourself this question, in what ways do you need to see and believe, not just say, see and believe that God will not let you go? And then you pray in that direction and you read scripture in that direction. And so eventually you'll, get, you'll answer these questions. It doesn't have to be immediately. It doesn't have to be by the time you leave this room. You'll answer these questions. When you answer these questions, then we ask, who in my life is Joshua 9 good news? To, to who, to whom, whom cares? Who in your life, Is Joshua 9 good news? And then you tell them your story of transformation. Now, for those of you who have not trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to save you, to make you right with God, instead of taking communion with us this morning, I want you to consider that question. Is Joshua 9 good news to me? Is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus good news to me? And I will tell you that it is. You are fully known, yet fully accepted. Turn to Him. For the church, we take the bread and the cup as we remember and celebrate that in His unswerving life, Jesus achieved perfect righteousness on our behalf. In his sacrificial death, Jesus paid the price for our unrighteousness, our, our mistakes, our um, deception, and our covenants that we've made without consulting him. And in his holy and eternal resurrection from the dead, Jesus offers us the same eternal resurrection relationship with him forever. And so we we take the bread and the cup representing the body and the blood of Jesus together. Whether we find ourselves deserving destruction like Gibeon or whether we assume naturally that God would rather kill than save or maybe we've all swerved. We've not kept God's commandments. We've sinned against him like the woman at the well, like Joshua and Israel, like everyone else in this room. Wherever you fall on the list of uh, Joshua and I being good news to you, it is good news because he loves and desires to show his people mercy. He will not let you go. Holy Father, would you remind us of the persistence of your love, that it outruns, it outperforms, it outlasts, It outreaches our sin. That your mercy endures because you've promised us that in Christ you will not let us go. So as we take communion this morning, remind us of this. Refresh our souls with this truth and empower us by your Holy Spirit to go to the family and friends and neighbors and coworkers and other soccer parents, cousins, God, the people we sit next to in a waiting room, would you let us take this message of transformation to them? God, we love you. We worship you this morning. Amen.